All right, once again, it's good to see everyone. We are back in the book of Philippians, and so you'll want to turn there. We're still in chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 12 through most of verse 18 um, today. So you'll want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, online, scroll down, however it is that you do it. I encourage you to get to the book of Philippians if you can't find it again. It's uh, one of the prison letters, the small letters in the middle of the New Testament. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you've got to Romans, keep going. If you get to all the T's, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, you've gone a little bit too far. So that would be great. Philippians 1, verses 12 uh, through 18 As always, listen carefully as this is the word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word, and we need it more than we think. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people, Lord. Today we come again to this wonderful book written by the Apostle Paul. So we pray we would learn from you today, that we would learn how to focus our attention on others and not on ourselves, so that we might talk with them and teach them about Jesus. Thank you that today we're learning again from the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them. And so we pray, speak through Philippians 1 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, the uh, topic of many urban legends is now a South by Southwest documentary film, the Bill Murray stories. And this documentary takes a look at the viral sensation of the actor Bill Murray popping up in random places, doing random things with random people. And apparently, people love it. The documentary shows him singing Uh, karaoke with random people. Um, He shows up at a random house party. They have no idea. They're having a party. He just walks in the door. Um, And when he does this, people love it. They express great joy that he has come to be with them. It makes their day that this famous actor would spend time with them and just hang out with them. One, he shows up at a kickball game. And uh, another day he walks into the Shangri-La bar in Austin, Texas, and takes over as the bartender. Um, 
Now, usually he doesn't dominate any of these events. He just shows up and tries to blend in and see if anybody notices. They're all spontaneous and unscripted events. And the film draws this connection between these random pop-up events with uh, Bill Murray's background in improv comedy. That's improvisation comedy. And in improv, the focus is to be in the moment, to just live in the moment, and you just react to what other people are doing. And this seems to be what Bill Murray is doing in the real world uh, with real people. Uh, one time he walked up behind a man, uh, put his hands over his eyes, and the man turned around and recognized him, and he just whispered to him, no one will ever believe you, and he walked away. <laughs> I mean, he gets away with it because he's famous, and people don't expect it. People don't expect a famous person to take time to get to know the people around them. But the fact of the matter uh, is that nowadays, people really don't expect any person to take the time to get to know the people around them. The people, random people, they bump into as they go about their day. We live in a society that's becoming more and more disconnected and isolated from one another. And yes, people have social outings and ac activities and events uh, that try to connect them to the community at large, but those are becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. Now, all of this caught my attention as someone who grew up on Ghostbusters and Caddyshack and Meatballs and Stripes and Groundhog Day, which I tend to watch once a year. Um, and I was reading and watching about all this, and it made me wonder, what if we did what Bill Murray does? What if we took the time to actually interact with the people around us on a personal level, and we lived in the moment for the sake of the other person? What if we struck up conversations with strangers just to get to know them? What if we sought to have fun with people in a way that made their day better? What if we practiced improv with those around us, not seeking the spotlight, but putting the spotlight on them? As people made in the image of God, we should want to know them, and we would want them to feel better for having met us, and we want them to leave feeling joy from having been with us. Now, one way we can do this is to see these personal interactions as improv, having fun in the moment, putting the spotlight on others, and just loving them as people. I think that would change how most of us treat people, would change the opportunities we have to share our faith. I think it would change how people hear we, uh, what we believe and what we would say about our faith. It's a bold way to live. And yes, it would open yourself up to rejection. But maybe, just maybe, there's something to this. And God could use us as we seek to love people in this way. And as I thought more about this, it occurred to me, the Apostle Paul would get along really well with Bill Murray. Because remember, Paul is facing a terrible trial. 
He's in chains. You know what that literally means? He's not wearing chains. He is chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard, at all hours of the day, every day. And the guards would work in shifts. They would come in for a, a certain shift, four or six hours. Um, but he was always changed, chained. He had been in prison, but for most of his time in Rome, Paul lived under house arrest, chained to a guard. He couldn't go to the bathroom in privacy. He couldn't sleep in privacy. So he's not only in this demeaning and demoralizing situation, he knows he's facing a trial and possible execution. And yet he says, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether I live or die, that's a small thing. He has triumphed in the moment. He's not discouraged. He's not in despair. Why? Well, first of all, because he learns to live in that moment. But B, he can do that because he trusts that God has put him there. He even says that in our text. If you go back and um, look at verse 16, knowing I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He trusts that God has put him there. And so, uh, in that moment, he believes he's where he's supposed to be. He's doing what God has called him to do. And that's to advance the gospel. And if it takes a little improv to pull that off, well, that's okay. So he tells the Philippians that the gospel is advanced through hardship. That's the first blank if you're following along in the outline. The gospel is advanced through hardship. Now he's having to explain what's going on in his life to the Philippians. They're concerned because Paul is, after all, writing this letter to them while he's under arrest. They're concerned about the suffering he's enduring. They're afraid of the punishment and a possible death sentence that may await him. They're concerned about the fact that he's under constant guard. He's not out preaching Christ. And they're concerned that the gospel be preached, and they're concerned that the best evangelist in the world has been sidelined. And they're concerned to figure out what's God doing in this, Lord, what's going on? What are you doing? You know all those, of all the people that need to be in prison, Paul's not one of them. He's the best at reaching the Gentiles. This part of the world has been evangelized largely because of Paul. He's the last guy you want in jail, Lord. And all these questions are running through their minds. So Paul explains, starting at verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word uh, without fear. So the Apostle Paul is explaining how his circumstances are actually advancing the gospel, not hindering it. He's telling the Philippians that their fears are unfounded, that his imprisonment isn't going to result in the hindering the gospel, but in fact, by God's sovereign providence, the gospel is going to spread more, despite his circumstance and even because of his circumstances. 
And that's the background of his statement in verse 12. I want you to know what has happened to me. Has served to advance the gospel. I mean, he's looking back. He sees clearly that everything that has happened to him over the last four or five years has a divinely ordained purpose. The false rumors, the riots, the beatings, the arrests, the four years of confinement, the public misunderstanding, the ruining of his reputation, the slander, the whispers, the accusations against his name, a shipwreck, and even a snake by Acts 28. Not to mention his arrest in Rome. All of these hardships are now seen as part of God's plan to bring him to Rome at precisely this moment, in precisely this situation, so he would be where God wants him to be. And then we read verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is the opposite of what we'd expect. If Paul's in prison, everyone's supposed to be afraid. Why are they much more bold to speak the word without fear? It says they're confident in the Lord. How did that happen? Paul's example of confidence in God, despite his circumstances, gave them confidence in God. His trust in God was contagious. Second, Paul takes on another concern that they have. So he lets them know that the gospel is advanced through mixed motives. That's the second point. Mixed motives, verses 15 through 17. Paul knows that they're wondering what their attitude ought to be towards all the other people uh, who are continuing to spread the gospel while Paul's chained up. You know, some of those other preachers, they don't like Paul. Some of them want to take over the churches that he's planted, perhaps even the Philippian church, and they consider Paul to be a rival. Some are envious because he's a much bigger name. And the Philippians aren't having it. I mean, the Philippians are big supporters of Paul. They've been sending him money. In fact, in chapter 4, we'll find out Paul's almost embarrassed because this relatively poor church is sending him such generous gifts that he can devote himself fully to preaching the gospel. He is their missionary. He's their church planner. He's their evangelist. They're sending money to him. And what should they think about these other people that are out there preaching the gospel while he's chained up? Well, we all know what it's like to do the right thing for the wrong reason. But what about the reverse? Have you ever done the wrong thing for the right reason, or at least for what you thought was the right reason? Your motives were pure, but you still blew it. Motives matter. The maker of heaven and earth isn't just concerned with our service, he's concerned with our hearts and our intentions and our motives. And as deeply as God cares about our, our motives, however, there's something he cares about even more. And that's the message. In Philippians, even though the motives listed here are wrong, Paul's rejoicing because the message is right. Starting with verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
the former people preaching from envy and rivalry proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So you have envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, and basically trying to get back at Paul. And because the Lord cares much about our hearts, wrong motives are, well, wrong. But because he cares more about the truth, the wrong gospel is worse. Now let's compare. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. You've got to go back two books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Gentiles eat pork chops. You can remember that. Galatians 1, verse 7 and 8. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. See, in Galatians, we don't read anything about motives. For all we know, these uh, preachers, these hypothetical apostles, it says we or an angel from heaven, they could have sincere motives. And yet Paul's outraged because the message is wrong. He calls it a contrary gospel. Have you ever known any Mormons? When I coached Little League Baseball, I had a Mormon on my team, and his family came to every game. I'm not sure I've ever met nicer people. If salvation was based on religious sincerity, they have a way better chance than I do. But they're lost and I'm saved. Is that because I'm more sincere? I don't think so. Because I'm more moral? No. Because I have stronger faith? I doubt it. It's for one simple reason. My Mormon friends have the wrong message. It's a contrary gospel. So it's really important. Motives are important, but the message is more important. If you have the wrong message, but the right motives, it's not going to end well for you. Now, most of us also have mixed motives. You know, we try to share the gospel or we preach and teach the Bible. We want people to love Jesus when they hear us. But truth be told, we kind of want them to love us a little bit too. And we're quick to tell others about the love of God, not so much the wrath of God. We almost always have some level of mixed motives this side of heaven. And what Paul is saying is let's not tweak the gospel. Our mission is to deliver the mail, not tamper with it. So you see, the only thing that bothers Paul more than wrong motives or mixed motives is a wrong gospel or a mixed gospel. According to the inspired Apostle Paul, the right message trumps every other consideration, even having mixed motives. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, passage I've spent some time in uh, lately, Paul tells the church, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel that Paul advanced is the message of what God has accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to reconcile rebels to himself. And we have to learn 
that the gospel may be advanced through us, sometimes in spite of us, but not usually because of us. Rather, the gospel is advanced through proclamation. That's the third blank there, verse 18. The gospel is advanced through proclamation. Now, if you look again at our text, you'll see some repetition in this passage. In every single verse, Paul uh, mentions either Jesus or the message of Jesus or simply the gospel. He uses the word gospel six times uh, in this chapter. And by gospel, he means the preaching of Christ, his death, resurrection, and present lordship. And his arrest meant that the preaching of the gospel advanced in Rome. His utter fixation on the proclamation of the gospel is evidenced by the two mentions of the gospel here in our text, in verses 12 and 16. Plus, we have these synonymous phrases, to speak the word, to preach Christ, verse 15, speak the word, verse 14, proclaim Christ, verse 17. And so the advance of the gospel overrides all else, and our passage ends, verse 18, with, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Everything in Paul's life is counted to this end. When Paul says, I want you to know what happened to me, he doesn't tell him about his arrest, his accommodations, or even his health. He tells him what he he cares about the most, the advance of the gospel of Christ. Paul's passion is to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go forth. His desire, his dream, his ambition is to see the gospel of Christ proclaimed and preached more than anything in the world. He wants to see the gospel advance. And that's exactly what happened. Having come to embrace the Christ whom Paul preached, the guards themselves began sharing their faith with those around him. The gospel succeeded so well that Paul was able to include these words at the very conclusion of the book of Philippians. At the end of this letter, he says, Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. His proclaiming to the imperial guard has reached all the way into Caesar's household. The gospel has always advanced in the face of persecution, imprisonment, hostility, oppression, and attack from outside the church. The gospel has also overcome division, dissension, competition, and mixed motives within the church. One of my favorite verses from Isaiah 55, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful in and of itself. If God sends the gospel, it doesn't matter where it goes. It accomplishes his purposes. Look at China. There have been long seasons of persecution of Christians in that country. They're in another one of those seasons today. And yet there's more Christians in China today than in any other country in the world. Another country that's been long close to Christians is Iran. Since the revolution of 
1979, that country has been ruled by a hardline Islamic regime. All missionaries were kicked out, evangelism was outlawed, Bibles were banned, pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. Many feared that this small Iranian church would wither away. But the opposite has happened. Despite continued hostility, Iranians have become the Muslim people who are most open to the gospel in the Middle East. In fact, the church is growing fastest in the Muslim world today. The two biggest countries where it's growing the fastest are Indonesia and Iran. How does that happen? Well, two factors. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment uh, with the regime, led many Iranians uh, to question their beliefs. And second, the Iranian Christians have continued to faithfully tell others about Christ, despite the fear of persecution. And as a result, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined, which goes back to when Islam first came to Iran. In 1979, there was an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, the estimate is there are hundreds of thousands. Nobody knows the exact number, but whatever it is, many Iranians are returning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Country on our radar now is Afghanistan. Of all places, the church has taken root there. No one knows exactly how many Christians are in Afghanistan, but they estimate the number started with just a handful in the late 70s because most Christians left when the Soviet occupation began in 79, I think. Now, one of my professors, J. Christie Wilson, man prayed more than anybody I've ever met. He was a missionary in Afghanistan long before he was a professor. And he told the most amazing stories of God answering prayer and leading Afghans to Christ. His whole life was one amazing story after another. When the Soviets kicked him out, uh, they said they were going to uh, destroy the church. And he said, not to worry, the church will go just go underground. So they bulldozed his church building, and then they dug down 10 feet uh, to make sure it didn't go underground. Translation issue there. They put him on a plane with two suitcases, and uh, he landed in New York. Had no idea, him and his wife, what they were going to do, where they were going to live, anything. They are just sitting in the terminal at a JFK. So they started praying. Guy sat down next to him. They started talking to him. Turns out he lived up in the Boston area, North Shore, and was a trustee at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, who just happened to be looking for a missions professor. So the guy said, why don't you come up uh, to Gordon-Conwell and uh, talk to them? So he said, okay. They bought tickets. This guy bought his ticket. They flew up to Boston. The guy brought him to Gordon-Conwell. No appointment, anything else. Walked in and said, I found our new missions professor. And it uh, took a few days, but they hired him, and so he had a job. He had no place to live, so uh, after they had that interview with him, they went out, and um, he was sitting in the lobby, and they were praying, trying to figure out what they were going to do, and somebody said, you know, I have a little guest house, but I'm going to board of trustees are not poor, 
and they say, I have a little guest house behind my uh, property. Why don't you come live there? So they said, okay. And uh, Christy lived in that guest house for the next 20 years, rent-free. It's all true. And he would tell story after story after story uh, like that. Most of them about Afghanistan. Much of the Afghan church today can still be traced to his ministry there. Afghan believers today number in the low thousands. Somewhere they estimate between two and 5,000. Worshiping in small house churches spread throughout the country and they're now coming under tremendous persecution. Josh Hanley is a pastor in a neighboring country. He keeps in touch with these Afghan believers and writes about him, and he says in God's providence, Kabul's fall has raised the awareness in the global church of what God is doing in Afghanistan. The new reality on the ground has brought these brothers new fears. The threat is close to them, and they know it. Every Afghan Christian I've talked to wants to live, and every Afghan Christian I've talked to is prepared to die. Their trust in the risen Christ is firm. They're holding fast in faith to our all-wise, sovereign, and kind God. So just as I sent them these lyrics from the song, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Josh continues, knowing sharing fellowship with Afghan believers is a privilege I don't deserve. Oh, what the church in the West could learn from them. In these days, your prayers for them and their faith are critical. Pray that the Lord would hold them fast and through them give faith to many others. Just three examples of how God works through really hard, difficult circumstances. And we often, uh, we only see God's hand at work in retrospect. I don't think Paul had any idea when he was first arrested in Caesarea that he would end up in Rome preaching to a bunch of imperial guards. That would only be revealed later. And the same is true for all of us. Rarely do we see the big picture while we're in the middle of a trial. God's purposes are generally revealed later. And our part is to patiently trust God while we wait for better days. One uh, final note to this, circumstances are no obstacle to God. You can be chained and innocent of all charges and still be in the will of God. Sometimes God puts you in chains because you can reach more people in chains than you ever could in freedom. Do you know the PCA has a church in a prison? In northern Alabama, the church behind the wire is an actual PCA church with ruling elders and deacons who are all prisoners. Chaplain Bull pastors a nearby uh, church where he uses his regular name, but at the prison he's Chaplain Bull, goes there and leads worship every Sunday. But they are a particularized church. They offer Bible studies during the week and seminary classes at the prison. Sometimes you can reach more people in chains than you could have freedom. I'm pretty sure that Paul didn't want to go to jail. I'm guessing he probably didn't enjoy the experience. But in the midst of everything, he saw God at work, God's hand at work, 
in his circumstances. And he ends with rejoicing. Jesus is Lord, even in prison, even in trials, even in the worst of circumstances, even on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And despite all of that, the gospel is advanced and Christ is proclaimed. And in that, we can rejoice. Our Presbytery, because it's a, a difficult situation, I can't tell you who, uh, we're going to send a missionary to Saudi Arabia to plant the first church, uh, uh, missions church that we're going to do. Saudi Arabia, of all places. When we face trials, when our circumstances get difficult, when life is hard, Paul says, in, even in the midst of that, we can rejoice. But the reality is we often don't. The reality is we, we look at our hardship and it's overwhelming. Our difficult circumstances and it just stops us. And so we think this isn't fair. You know, a poet once complained to a friend, life's not fair. A banker can write a bad poem. Nobody says anything, but a poet writes a bad check. Everybody gets upset. But there's times we feel that way. Something happens to us and we say, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? We seem to be stuck in the same job. Others are getting promotions or they leave for better jobs in other companies. And we work hard and do good work and we get along with people. And for some reason, others advance and we don't. And we think... This isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? We finished college, gotten a degree, have a pretty good job, ready to settle down and get married. Our friends are getting engaged. By the way, congratulations, Joe. We just got engaged. The, uh, and we've been going to lots of weddings lately. But nothing's happening to us. Lord, where's the person for me? I think I have a lot to offer someone. I thought for a while something might develop with that particular person, but after a few months, it didn't work out. My married friends are buying condos and going on vacation, and I'm living at home, and I go on vacation with my parents. This isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? We have difficulty conceiving a child. Other people get married, and they have one child after another with no difficulty we long to decorate a nursery, choose a name, shop for baby clothes like other families do. We know uh, we'd be good parents. And we think this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? You know who didn't say that? Doug Coiner. Some of you remember Doug. Doug's a former member of our church who passed away last month. I last met with Doug one year ago today. It was a Saturday. We met for breakfast at Puccio's in downtown Leesburg. Doug was coming off a heartbreaking divorce. He'd recently moved back to Leesburg. He had tried to come back to Potomac Hills, but uh, it reminded him of going to church with his ex-wife, and that made it difficult. Stress was affecting his health. He'd had dozens of surgeries in his life with lots of ongoing negative effects uh, on his health. And uh, Doug suffered from ectodermal dysplasia, which I hope I pronounced right. 
It's a group of genetic disorders that involve defects in the skin, bones, nails, and teeth, and often results in disfigurement and speech impediments. And uh, in the book, Same Lake, Different Boat by Stephanie Hubach, Mark grew up with Fred, right? Hubach. I talked to Stephanie yesterday, and she said, Hi, Dave. Fred and I were on a camping trip in Yellowstone National Park with Roger and Patty Coiner, Doug's parents, when they got the call from the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office that Doug had died. He was late for a meeting at work, so they sent someone to check on him, and they found him dead in his office. An autopsy has been done, but we haven't received the results yet. Thank you for your care for Doug. As you know, he was in a heartbreaking place this time last year. But the Lord grew him tremendously through it. In the last year, he was doing amazingly well in life and in his walk with Christ when he died. His last Facebook post said, I woke up feeling blessed. Everything isn't perfect, but I know God is working it out for my good. Blessings and lessons go hand in hand. He died five days later. Now I can assure you, I met with Doug a number of times, that joy didn't come naturally to Doug. He struggled with loneliness, with discouragement, with confusion over God's promises and purposes, just as many of us do. He would have been the first to insist that what made him an encouragement to others came from outside of himself. It came from Jesus. Doug's joy gives the rest of us a reason to trust that his Lord and ours can and will sustain our own spirits in time of trial. I never heard Doug say, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? Why not? He had more than enough reason to. And the only answer I have is that Doug had a deep faith in the providence of God. As followers of Jesus, both Doug and the Apostle Paul had a high view of the providence of God. That's the belief that God is in charge of everything that happens to us, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative, and that in some way, unknown to us, he orders all things, including our own free choices, so that what happens to us is for our good and his glory. Now that doctrine is easy to believe when things are going well, when our health is good, our family's together, our marriage is going uh, along, and our career is moving forward, and we have money to pay our bills, and a good church to attend, and friends who love us, and everything's coming up roses. But it's something else to say you believe in God's providence when your health is bad, your marriage is failing, your family is blown apart, your career is going nowhere, and your friends have turned against you. That's when you discover what you truly believe. There was a time when the Apostle Paul thought back over several years of what had happened in his life. And he looked back at what happened to him and he could have been so tempted to say, this isn't fair, why is this happening to me? It's amazing that Paul doesn't speak a word of complaint about his situation. 
He's not asking, why has this happened to me? I served God faithfully all these years. I've always sought to do his will. Why this? It's not fair. But he doesn't. What does he say? Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Paul could say that because he lived in the moment. Perhaps he was waiting for Bill Murray to show up, but instead he got a praetorian guard who chained himself to Paul. And so he told that guard and the next guard and the next guard about the gospel. And so it would go, guard after guard chained to Paul, guard after guard hearing about Christ, guard after guard talking to other guards about the prisoner who is in love with Jesus. Because that's where it all starts, with loving Jesus. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess how easily we're overcome by our circumstances. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us. Enable us to hold fast to the truth of Christ. Purify our mixed motives. Replace our concerns for being treated fairly with concerns for the gospel being advanced. And Lord, enable us to demonstrate this newfound love for the gospel in our prayers. Grant that we may live like people who look to Jesus, who love Jesus, who love to talk about Jesus and teach about Jesus and work in each of us this fall as we learn to live lives worthy of the gospel. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and through the book of Philippians, draw us ever closer to the one we proclaim your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.